Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Welcome back. This is John U. Bacon on Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm, of course, John Bacon, the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And no, I'm not making that up. Today we're doing something a little different. Uh, A month ago I gave a eulogy for a great mentor, friend, coach, uh, and really surrogate father to hundreds if not thousands, Paul Helbert. He passed away at 82 of cancer, an amazing man, as you'll see. In fact, our relationship starts when he cuts me from the ninth grade travel team, which broke my heart, but he did it so compassionately and so well that that became the foundation for our friendship. Paul is an amazing guy who coached over 120 baseball, soccer, and hockey teams for his kids and others growing up, refed thousands of games. Just an amazing personality, amazing man. So hopefully you'll enjoy this and learn some few things along the way. He's certainly a great role model for me, and I bet you too. So here it is. With the family's permission, of course, Diane Helber and her children all said, by all means, do it. I would never do it without the permission. So here it is, my eulogy for Paul Helber. I invite up John Bacon to come and share some words with the family. Thank you, Pastor Vicki, as they all call you. Pardon my water bottle. I could not find a water bottle with a flat bottom, so this says Michigan Tech Huskies. I think Paul would understand. Although he criticized me for not being a Michigan one, of course. So, Paul, my apologies. It's been a busy week for everybody. As John Lennon said, life is what happens when you're making other plans. When the Helbers asked me to do this, of course, the answer was a very quick yes. It's an honor, and many of you, of course, uh, could do this as well. Um, But being a busy week with a book due tomorrow, my mom at the doctor's office yesterday, driving her around, I was tempted last night to skip my son's soccer practice and work on this, and then I realized you cannot work on a eulogy for Paul Helbert while skipping soccer practice. (laughs) If you do that, you kind of miss the whole point. So. So anyway, thank you for that. I'm going to start out telling a story I was not going to tell until I bounced it off Diane Helber, Paul's wife, of course. I didn't want to tell it at first because it's about me, but then I thought it makes me look bad, so it might work pretty well. So in, I first met Paul in uh, ninth grade for me. I had been the last man cut in fifth grade from the travel team, last man cut in seventh grade from the travel team, but, but I am not bitter. 
45 years ago, man, get over it, right? <laughs> Ninth grade, I thought I had it. I had a great spring season. I was one of the top scorers. I swear that's true, Tim. Look it up. So I'm trying out for Paul's travel team, the one that Keith is on. And I think I've got it, but I'm close. I know it's going to be close. And instead of putting a list on the wall, what Paul did is said to me afterwards, he said, Bake, I want to come over here and talk to me. So we went to a private room at Vets Park, and he laid in the line. He said, you are close, really close. You're the toughest call I made. It was painful to do it. He said, but uh, you're a little short. He was being generous. I was about five foot two then. I was not always this tall. So he said, you're a little short, but you work hard. You play a good game, and, uh, and you're taking this like a man. And the second he said, and I was determined to be square-jawed and look him in the eye the whole time and not cower. But the second he said, you're taking this like a man, it's the second I lost it. And so my eyes burst, of course. I'm sobbing now like a little boy. And then he puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, I know it's hard. And Paul was so patient with me, so empathetic. I'm going to get choked up again. Put his shoulder, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, you work hard, you got a good game, you're going to have a great season, and I will see you again. I will keep my eye on you. And that, of course, was completely true. That conversation, which I remember like it was yesterday, I can describe the whole scene, that was the foundation of a 44-year friendship between me and Paul Helber. That in itself, I think, speaks volumes of what kind of man Paul Helber was. The lowest day of my hockey career, if you will, uh, was one of the best days between me and Paul. And when I became a head coach at Huron, I did it Paul's way. We didn't just put a list on the wall. We said to the guys who made the team, if you made the team, walk out quietly. If you didn't make the team, my door is open and I'll talk as long as you want to talk. That's straight from the Paul Helber playbook right there. So... That show of compassion, I've never forgotten, of course. I assume that he had forgotten that, as why wouldn't you? He coached, by the way, about 120 teams in his time. That's a lot of players who made the team, a lot of players who didn't make the team. But I'll get back to that in a second. About 15, 20 years later, I'm with Tim Helber. I've always known him as T-Bone, of course, playing on Ned Glisson's great Zell dynasty, as we called it, about 12 years or so. And I was very flattered when Tim told Ned he had that kind of power. He was the captain of the team. Tim told Ned, I want to play with Bakes. I want Bakes on my line. Uh, I meekly asked Ned if I could do that. We had different power in the team. And those were the 12 happiest years I think I've spent playing hockey as Tim's left winger. It was wonderful. That bonded our friendship for life, too, of course, as well as mine with Ned. And then a few years later, a few years ago, actually, about four or five years ago, apropos of nothing, we were not talking about it. I never brought up the ninth grade tryouts once to Tim or to Paul. Paul interrupts himself during one of our conversations, says, Bakes, I should have taken you. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Pathetically, this mattered to me. But it, what kind of man remembers a kid he cut 44 years ago? That's a five-minute conversation. 44 years ago. He retained everything. I never once saw Paul in the thousands of conversations I've had with Paul over the years. I never once saw him stumble on a name. The people in his life are what mattered to him, and he didn't forget any of us. That was pretty amazing. Uh, Paul Dolan, I was sitting on the bench, a frequent place for me the other night, Sunday night, after we got the news, and Paul Dolan was sitting next to me, and I asked him about Paul Helber and his memories, and he said, you know, Paul Paul Helber never coached me. He said, Mr. Helber, actually. Mr. Helber 
never coached me, but he really coached all of us. Paul Helber never coached me, and he's one of the best coaches I ever had. Of course, he married his high school sweetheart, Diane. They were genuinely in love, and anybody who's been around them knows that immediately for 60 years. That's pretty incredible. Paul was always at the rink, of course, and Diane was almost always at home. So a few times this got some tons, tons, sorry, tongues. I can't say tongues. That's good. Tongues wagging in the hockey lobby, and that's a wonderful thing to hear, by the way. When you hear about Cosmo in the hockey lobby, it's got to be good, right? So one of her friends comes down and says, you know, they're talking about you in the hockey lobby. And she said, oh, what are they saying? And apparently they're saying, you know, Paul's first wife, Paul's first wife gave him five sons, but she was not allowed to come to the rink. And then he marries a hot new young wife who gives him a daughter, and now she's allowed to come to the rink. Of course, she loved hearing this because she was both wives, so... (laughs) Sometimes gossip is better than others, and so keep that one in your pocket. Diane told me I met with the Halberts for about three hours with about 15 family members of all generations, uh, in-laws included, getting a lot of good stories, a lot of good insights, and Diane told me, we always thought the most important job in the world was being a parent, and no matter how crazy their days were, they always, always, always stopped for a family dinner. It was often between 5.10 and 5.25, but it was scheduled and everyone put in at least 10 minutes every night, no matter what. Given their crazy schedules, that says a lot also. Kenny Kane, one of his great players, of course, sent me a text message a few nights ago, and he said, Mr. Halbert taught me, more than anyone else outside of my own dad, Al Kane, how to be a good dad. Paul was always there for his kids and everyone else's, never expecting anything in return, just because that was the right thing to do. More than that, It was not just the right thing to do. I think being a dad gave him the greatest pleasure of anything in his life, and close second to that, of course, was his job. He spent his career working at Maxi Boys Camp and High Point, working with the neediest kids we have. One of his colleagues said on Facebook this week, Paul was not an office guy. Paul was a hallway guy. He was not interested in paperwork. He was interested in people. Paul Helber loved people. Diane recalls one scene many years ago where they're at a buffet restaurant and he sees some kids from High Point come in and he recognizes one of his students whom I will call Kathy for our purposes. She was born deaf and blind and all she could do was lay on a gurney. Her legs um, were wrapped. Paul said, oh, Kathy's here. I'll go talk to her. And Diane gently reminded him that she is deaf and she can't speak and she's blind. She will not see you or hear you. And Paul looks at Diane, winks, and says, watch me. He goes over there, sits down with her at her level, he rubs her arm, and he whispers in her ear, and before very long, as Diane could say, from across the room you could see her face was aglow. He had gotten to her. That is a man with special powers. Values. On Monday, I also could not resist asking at some point, I said, look, it's none of my business, but how the heck did you guys get six kids through baseball and softball and soccer and hockey and all this stuff on a teacher's salary. And Tim explained it to me when he was eight years old. He's there at the rink with two of his buddies. They're horsing around, and the other buddies' dads aren't there, which back then you could do. And they wanted to get a donut. They wanted to play a game of pinball. And Tim said, no problem. I'll go talk to my dad. So he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I need a dollar. He says, what for? He said, you know, a game of pinball and a donut, which I don't think impressed Paul too much. And 
Paul gave him a dollar and a lecture. And the lecture was, this is one dollar. I am a teacher. This is the last dollar I am ever going to give you. That proved true also. He said, you can play hockey and baseball. We'll have you in good clothes, good equipment. Much of it hand-me-down from his brothers, of course. We'll take care of all those things without any worries whatsoever. But anything extra, you will have to earn yourself. And then he says, oh, and by the way, to his eight-year-old son, you're going to college, but you're paying for it yourself. That's a lot to absorb for an eight-year-old, I would assume. He didn't know much about tuition. So what happens? Tim takes the dollar. They get their donut. They get their pinball game in, of course. The next day... He asks big brother Eric for a chunk of his paper route. Eric very kindly gives him the hardest chunk, I believe, of the paper route. But Tim is now in business, and that's how the Halberts did it. They spent their money not on things. They spent their money on experiences for their family, and that's how you do it. Matt said, Mom and Dad always kept it simple and focused on the right things, and that dollar is your proof. Of course, Paul put in ungodly hours, uh, at work, of course, with his family, and then naturally coaching and refing. He slept only four or five hours a night, which probably that's how you do that one also, by the way. That makes more sense. He would come home from an incredibly demanding job that's also probably draining in many ways to coach all his kids' teams. Now, that's about 20 teams per kid. Uh, one hockey season, one baseball season every summer. Six kids, that's 120 teams. Right, that is a crazy load right there. And whatever game he wasn't ref, was not coaching, of course, he's either playing or refing. That is a full load. And as Eric told me, it was not one night a week. It was every night, every week. And Tim told me, our teammates would show up an hour early for baseball practice to play in our front yard because they did not have that at home. Paul was father to countless hundreds and hundreds of kids. You played hockey in Ann Arbor, and you didn't know Paul Helber, you didn't play hockey in Ann Arbor. You're lying. If you played hockey in Ann Arbor, Paul would have seen you and known you. Jay Forstner, one of his old players, a great writer also, he sent a message two years ago to the Halber family doing a little math, and I'll probably butcher it here, but here's how it breaks down. He said, you had six kids, two seasons per, two seasons per each year, times about 10 years each. That's 120 teams. And I know he said it was more than that, which I'm sure it was. He said, if it's 15 kids per team... That's almost 2,000 kids that Paul Halber coached. Then Jay asked, how many of those are coaching today? If you figure it's 50% is conservative, that's about 1,000 former players coaching out there. If they only coached 100 kids each, which is low, that's about 100,000 people that Paul Halber's values have now been communicated to. Fill Michigan Stadium and all of their lives have been improved by Paul Helber. In Africa, they say that to raise a child, it takes a village. Paul Helber was a one-man village. Perhaps the greatest proof of his impact on people might be the testimony of my old buddy, lifelong friend, and teammate, Ken Tamazawa. Ken Tamazawa, wonderful man, big heart, hard worker, great player, smart guy, never won an award for sportsmanship. At one point, my favorite Ken Tamazawa story He's in the penalty box, and somehow gets a penalty while in the penalty box. The penalty is for fighting in the penalty box. His own teammate, who was his brother. 
the refs did not know what to do. <laughs> is this two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes? Is this even a penalty? Your teammates? So they both end up in the box with Ned as my witness. So, And yet, Ken Tamazawa is now the director in Indianapolis of the Little League officials. Not making that up. When Paul Halber passed away this weekend, Ken sent an email out to his referees, and he said the following. Paul Halbert was a significant influence in my life as he was for so many others. He taught us, mentored us, advised us, consoled us, managed us, fathered us, and so much more. As officials, the methods, ideology, and techniques we use are directly attributed to Paul's teachings. Having integrity and respect for all involved were just a couple of the lessons that I learned from Paul Halbert that I've tried to pass on to you. And I think many of us, probably all of us, can say that. Refereeing, Paul did not merely referee the games. Of course, Paul had an hour-long conversation with everybody involved. A face-up is a great chance to catch up with the centers at that point. So it's talking the entire game, which actually is a very good way to ref a game. I never saw one of Paul's game ever as a player, as an assistant coach, as a coach, as a beer league player. Never saw one of his games get out of control because Paul knew the people. We all felt a certain obligation to him. And that's very rare in the referee world. He said to his daughter, Amy, if you make a mistake, it's simple. Just admit it and move on. He took his work seriously, but he didn't take himself seriously. Amy taught me one trick, by the way, that he told her at one point. If a parent calls who is upset, here's what you do. And I wish I had this one a few years ago. But anyway, you're talking. They're doing all the talking. Never interrupt them, of course. There's no point in that. Finally, when you're talking, he said, Hang up, but don't hang up on them, hang up on yourself. You start talking to them and say, I understand how you feel, this is very difficult, I apologize, and and you hang up on yourself. This is genius, because then he said, three minutes later, you call them back and you say, I have no idea what happened, and by then they've calmed down. <laughs> Red, I bet you, wish that, you had that one in your back pocket a few years ago too, so that's a, that is a, that is a, a Jedi mind trick right there, so... As Mike told me, his dad was never sarcastic. I have no idea what that's like. He never made fun of anyone either. Diane said he never belittled anyone to make himself look better at somebody else's expense. Never, ever. He brought out the best in everyone. And again, I never saw him stumble on a name. I probably had, I did the math in this in the back of an envelope, about 1,000 conversations with Paul, an average of about one per two weeks, often many more than that, naturally. It's about 1,000 conversations over 44 years. Not once, not one time, did Paul did ever catch him checking his watch or looking at his phone or looking over my shoulder to somebody who's more important or more interesting. When Paul was talking to you, he was talking to you, and you're the only person in the world that mattered at that moment. He locked in like no one's business. As Matt told me, he could get into meaningful conversations with almost anyone faster than anybody I've seen. That's a, year, a lifetime of compassion and empathy. Megan, one of his granddaughters, said, I will, forever, I will forever remember that smile and that twinkle in his eye whenever he saw you. Megan also told me, by the way, some things I did not know. Paul apparently was a great singer and a great dancer. Did anybody know this about Paul? I would, I would pay top dollar to have seen some of that. Tim explained he had complete confidence in himself at all times. He never felt uncomfortable, insecure in himself. I learned on Monday that Paul was a hoarder on my tour of the Halber House. Sorry, what did you think was going to happen exactly? 
You get John Begging on a tour of your house, it's going to end up at the podium. Sorry. So, so yes, Paul was a hoarder, but not of things. Paul was a hoarder of memories, all right? Programs, letters, uh, the referee schedule from 2014, because you've got to save that, right? Because his friends are in that list. You go down there, and it's news clips of his family, of course, that received many news clips of his friends, of others. And i got to tell, in this stacks of mementos, which really was his fortune compiled in his basement, there was an article there that I wrote for USA Hockey Magazine in the fall of this past year, an excerpt from my latest book about coaching the Huron High School hockey team. And he had to turn to a color picture of Paul and I in the same frame. Paul is refing one of our games. He's in his whole regalia. He's there at the bench. His body language is perfect. He's going like this to me. Right? My body language is not nearly as flattering. My body language is this. It's not my proudest moment. But even in that moment, I never saw Paul get in an argument with anybody, including me. He had a wonderful way of disagreeing with people. He knew what he believed. He was not afraid to have his opinions. But he could disagree with you in a way that was not disagreeable. When I saw that, I admit now, I almost lost it again. That's the kid doing this that he cut 44 years earlier. Paul saw fit to save that photo. That, to me, is who Paul was. Mike said that Paul was very proud and told all his family members repeatedly that he was, in fact, the oldest player again on the ice that night. Uh, those nights increased over time, naturally. At some point, of course, Paul got fake knees, and Lou Issel, another hockey friend, warned him the warning that he got from his orthopedic surgeon about Paul taking the ice. You can't play hockey with two fake knees. If anything happens to them, if you break them, you might be in a wheelchair, you might get them amputated, you might shorten your lifespan. And Paul said, and I quote, Lou, I'm a hockey player. I know all the risks. I could get killed tomorrow on I-94 by a semi-truck, but I would die a hockey player. That was Paul. His last years of refing, Diane says, he started to slow down a bit and he didn't feel as good. She said, it was the cancer, but we didn't know it then. A few months ago, I saw him at the rink, and I've been talking to the family throughout, to T-Bone and Tim, sorry, to Tim throughout. I knew what the situation was. I knew what the prognosis was. When you see Paul, man, he looked great. He was vibrant. He's about to take the ice. I'm there with my, our son, Teddy, six-year-old in Minimites. And, of course, Paul and I talked for half an hour or so while they played upstairs. And he laid it all on the line. He wasn't pulling any punches. This is the situation here. And he was very direct about it. He didn't seem to have any fear that I could detect. But he wanted us some more days, but that's all. I took for granted that I would see Paul one more time. As he told me, in 1978, I will see you again. I'll keep my eye out for you. And he always did. But now it's my turn to keep my eye out for him. I thought I'd see him again. I'm doing a side project, just mine, pet project. About all the mentors I've had, the role models, and Paul, of course, is on the short list. I still wanted to sit down and talk with him. And again, I had the illusion of more time, but... Even Dick Clark can't live forever, and that was Paul. So when I got the news, I was probably like you, surprisingly stunned. I shouldn't have been. I knew the situation, but it still threw me for a loop. Tim told me that day, gave me the news, and he said, the whole family has made it back to town from Philadelphia, from Sweden, from all over. Paul held on to see them all. He was ready to go, and we are all at peace. I texted him back. I'm not surprised the family has all returned. I'm not surprised that Paul somehow held on until they all did. 
He was a tough old bird. I'm not surprised he was ready to go, and I'm not surprised the family is at peace. These are all the hallmarks of a life beautifully lived. Talking to Diane, she said about the day Paul passed away. There was no unfinished business. There was no animosity between anyone. There were no conflicts. In spite of everything, that was a good day. And it was a good day because there is so much love. Within this house, it is all good. Jackie Robinson said, a life is unimportant except for the impact it has on other lives. Paul Helber, son, brother, husband, father, teacher, coach, and mentor to so many, including the Kitty Cut in 78. You simply could not have lived a better life. And we are all the better for it. Thank you. I'm Tim Helbert, Paul's third oldest child. This is my brother Eric, the oldest of the group. And the entire extended Helbert family wants to thank so much to Pastor Vicky, Pastor Vicky, John U. Bacon, Denise. You know, we are so thankful for everybody who joined us today to honor Dad's life, whether you're in person or virtually. Thank you. I know that my dad would want to be here in person. He would be the most energized person over the coming hours. He would know each of you by face, each of you by name, and he would have a conversation with you that uh, would end with him bragging about his family, undoubtedly. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening. This has been John Bacon on Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. And of course, that was my eulogy for Paul Helber one of the most amazing leaders I have ever encountered. Please do us a favor here at Let Them Lead and tell your friends about it. Subscribe, leave a review. All those good things help quite a bit. Most podcasts spread by word of mouth. So please tell one friend today and we'll keep growing. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. Please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead.